All right, Jesse, I'm still having nightmares about Catherine Knight last week. That was grisly. Let's see what you have for me this week. When a turn-of-the-century supermodel becomes the favored companion to the rich and famous, her life becomes front-page fodder, rife with scandal, rape, powerful men, murder, the trial of the century, and even an escape from a mental asylum. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about love gone fatally wrong with sometimes devastating consequences. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app and help new people discover the show. And if you leave us a review and send us a DM or an email, we'll send you a sticker. We would love to send you guys a sticker. So please, please, please send us a little note or review. Okay. Andy, I have some very exciting and really important things to discuss before we jump right in today. I, you know, Andy and I have already talked about this a little bit, so it's it's mostly for you guys here, but on episode 28, which... Now feels like a long time ago because we are, you know, recording a little bit ahead um, for our maternity. Told the story of Aaron Corwin. And if you guys haven't listened, I highly recommend you go back and check it out. Aaron was an incredibly sweet young woman who just loved animals and is just one of the most pure, innocent souls that we have ever covered. And she was taken much, much too early. A couple weeks after the episode aired, uh, Andy and I actually received an email from Laura Hevelin, Aaron's mom. And, you know, the Hevelin family has suffered such a, a terrible loss. And it was really profound to hear from her. And she was really fantastic and, you know, thanked us for how we covered her story. And she even sent us a video clip of Aaron with her cat that she trained and training her cat because we talked about it on the episode. And, you know, especially, you know, Andy's a huge cat lover and a cat mom over here. So it was, it was really, really special. So of course, we asked Lore, you know, if there was any organization that we or any of our listeners who were interested could donate to in Aaron's memory. And she told us about Cave Rescue at caverescue.net. Yeah, so this is the group of volunteers that spent thousands and thousands of hours helping find Aaron's body so that they, the whole family could have some justice and peace. Here's what Lore said about the organization. These people are volunteers that give up their personal time to search for someone they never met. The few that we met treated searching for Aaron like they were searching for their loved one. They are incredible people that have to pay for their own training and equipment. If donations in memory of Aaron helps them be prepared to search for someone else, that is a blessing that comes from our loss. 
So we made a small donation on behalf of Love Murder. And if any of you are so inspired, feel free to check it out. You can go to caverescue.net. So that's cave, C-A-V-E, rescue.net. Absolutely. And we will put um, the link in the episode notes for this episode. And when this episode airs, we'll also make sure to put it on our Instagram and Facebook so you guys can have easy access in three different places. I'm actually also going to go back and edit the description on episode 28 so that we can have it in those episode notes too. So again, thank you so much, Laura, for reaching out to us. And we are so deeply saddened by your loss. All right, Andy. With that being said, are you ready for a historical story? When are you taking me to? (laughs) So this is turn of the century, 19th, wait, 18th. I never know when (laughs) it's actually turning. It's like 1901 to like the story takes place like 1901 through like 1915-ish. So hasn't it just turned then? Yeah. It's so the very turned. turn of the century. It's turned. <laughs> it's turned of the century. It's turned of the century. And to be honest, things don't sound that 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 different really from how they are today, unfortunately. Oh God. Yeah. So are you ready to get in the way back machine with me? I mean, you just said it's like now, so I guess we're not going that far. <laughs> yeah. It's, you'll see. There's sadly a lot of things that have, I mean, there's ex- excitedly a lot of things that have progressed, but then there's sadly a lot of things that remain the same. So we need to do better. But let's talk about this specific tragedy right now. In 1901, 16-year-old beauty Evelyn Nesbitt was the talk of the town. She had been performing in the hit Broadway show Floridora for six weeks, and in that time, she had received accolades and admirers aplenty. The hoi polloi of New York's social set went wild for her, especially the wealthy and connected men. Only two years earlier, Evelyn had been struggling in poverty with her widowed mother and brother, having left school to work in a department store in Philadelphia to make ends meet. Mm. Now she sat in the tasteful home of Stanford White, the brilliant architect who had designed Madison Square Garden and the Washington Square Arch on Fifth Avenue. Her photos were everywhere. Her lustrous dark hair, doe-like hazel eyes, perfect skin and full mouth, making her the most sought after model at the turn of the century. Ooh. Stanford was delighted to entertain the young and winsome beauty and showered Evelyn and her friend with expensive vintages of champagne and showed off his playroom, an artistic studio covered with ornate antiques and velvet cushions. In the center of the large room was a stunning red velvet swing hung from the high ceiling. Buzzed from the bubbles, she took the padded seat and began to swing as Stanford pushed her and she laughed and laughed and laughed. For one moment, she was not a model, not a Broadway star, but just a 16-year-old girl with a bright future who could not believe her good luck. Little did she know that her young life would be rife with tragedy, rape, murder, sadomasochism, failed marriages to millionaires, and all of her terrible secrets would come to light during the trial of the turn of the century. 
This is the story of the world's first supermodel and her killer millionaire lover. Ooh. Ooh, this story is juicy. It is truly turnt of the century over here. Uh, so that, that velvet swing is pretty turnt. Right. <laughs> in the in the apartment. Like, come in, on. Yeah, he like had this fancy townhouse that had like multiple floors and like secret rooms. And it was like basically a big playhouse. Um, she's 16 bro she's 16 bro he is deeply problematic as we will get into and he's not the only one this is a a rough time to be a 16 year old girl what's his age he's 47 gross though super duper gross um so the sources that i used predominantly was the girl on the velvet swing by simon batts which is incredibly well-written and meticulously researched, so I highly recommend. I also used an article from headstaff.org um, from 2016 by Siren Conleaf, and I did a smattering of Wikipedia this week. You really went in. I went in. You got some is- details for me. <laughs> I did. I wanted to do this one justice. I think you guys will really get into this one. It's extremely juicy, so... This is also like legit a week before we're due, right? <laughs> yes. Well, I think it's, we have one more episode. Next week is a, the last episode before your due date. Isn't that yeah, crazy? This one's the third week of Feb. So this is like yep. the, you know, like 17th, 20th, 21st. Uh-huh. This is the 17th. Yeah. So the next one will be the 24th. Oh my God. So next week, guys. And we don't even know. Andy could have already given birth if you go yeah. before your due date. Yeah. We, we're like, we're in the danger zone right now. We are. So keep your uh, eyes posted for our Instagram. We'll announce the babies as they come. Speaking of being born, Evelyn was born on Christmas Day, 1884, Aww. just outside of Pittsburgh. Yep. She's a Christmas baby. Her father was a lawyer who died unexpectedly when Evelyn was only 10. Mr. Nesbitt had not provided well for the family in case of his demise, and his widow, Florence, was ill-prepared for single motherhood. She lacked education or gumption, and she fell into a state of prolonged depression. Slowly, the family slipped into poverty, forced to beg for loans from family and friends just to keep a roof over their head. Oh, no. I mean, this is just shows you how fast your fortune can turn if you don't have two providers, which no one did back in the Gilded Age. You know, women never worked. Uh, so it was a disaster. Um, in 1899, she moved her small family to Philadelphia, where she secured a position at Wanamaker's, the largest department store in the city. A 14-year-old Evelyn also took a position there, which is where she was discovered by an artist named John Storm. She began to sit for the artistic set in Philadelphia, even becoming a model for a celestial angel immortalized in a Philly church cathedral. So she was like basically the go-to model for all of Philly. Florence, excited by the money Evelyn was making, which was more than the cash both women were bringing in from the department store, moved the family to New York City where Evelyn could make a run at the big time. Cool. 
In New York, Evelyn did very well for herself, commanding at least $5 a sitting, about $150 in today's money. It's kind of crazy how little models and actresses got paid back in the early 1900s, like compared to what famous superstars get paid now. Yeah. A hundred, like 150 bucks, 150 bucks, like depending on how long the sitting lasts. Jeez Louise, that's not that great. But she was kind of, there were several sources that cited her as the world's first supermodel. So she really set the tone. And I just don't think that society valued women in the same way at that time, you know? You think? (laughs) Yeah, that's why I said a lot of things have changed. A lot haven't. Mama Nesbitt rejected finding a career for herself in favor of becoming her daughter's manager. Here we we got the first momager over here. It seems that she wasn't that great at this role either, as it was suggested that she could have negotiated better rates for her stunning daughter and that she was a poor chaperone, often abandoning Evelyn at shoots. As a result, the teen was often put in precarious situations with predatory artists and photographers. Her mother later denied she allowed the young girl to pose nude, but two surviving works that showcase Evelyn in the buff or close to it strongly dispute her statement. Oh, God, that's so gross. She was not a good momager. Nonetheless, Evelyn became what some called the world's first supermodel and certainly the most in-demand working model in the early 1900s. She posed for famous artists and photographers, graced the covers of Vanity Fair, Harper's Bazaar, Ladies Home Journal, Cosmopolitan, as well as other now defunct women's magazines of the time. She looks... She looks like uh, a little bit like Millie Bobby Brown, 11 from Stranger Things. Mm -hmm. But like, does she have long hair? She has really long hair. That's the only difference. So she has like really thick, beautiful brown long hair. But she has kind of like that innocence look to her. And they're about the same age. Like she started modeling around 14. When she came to New York, she was 16 which I think Millie Bobby Brown is like now 16. I feel like that those like brown eyes and brown hair always kind of have that doughy look though. It's yes, like that's kind very, of the Yeah, she's she's genuinely a very a very pretty girl. Will of course put up tons of pictures guys, so make sure to check the Instagram. Yeah, she's very compelling. It's it's easy to see why she got so big. She appeared in fashion advertising for every product under the sun and shot calendars for Prudential Life Insurance and Coca-Cola. She even helped create the image of the pinup girl as well when she became a Gibson girl, a model for Charles Dana Gibson, one of the country's most renowned artists. I mean, there's not anything else she could have done. (laughs) No, but also, isn't she like too young to be a pinup girl too? Or is that... It was different. You'll see. So there's a famous work. I think it's called something like women as a question or something about women in question marks because it like it's her face, but like posed with her hair, like shaping a question mark. And so it was really like more it was before the pinups were very like scandalous. It's really more just her beautiful face. Got it. And so it was more at the beginning of his career and less like when we got into like kind of like the sexy legs and bums and stuff, you know? Got it. Okay. 
Despite Evelyn's success, the family was still living in a one-bedroom apartment together, attempting to make ends meet because of the high cost of New York City living. So again, not much has changed. (laughs) Evelyn eventually expanded her repertoire into acting, scoring a role as a chorus girl in the wildly popular Floridora, a romantic comedy musical set in the Philippines. Her mother was originally hesitant to allow her daughter's foray into the stage as actresses were considered down class back in the Gilded Age, which, of course, is just barely out of the Victorian age. So we're still we're still pretty uptight around now, you know. However, Mama Nesbitt was swayed with the idea of the extra money as Evelyn could take home a salary of nearly five hundred dollars a week in today's money. So still not a ton but she could do that at night and make $500 a day like $500 a week and she would still have time to go to like sittings during the day okay so she was like you know (laughs) the same way child and teen actors are like worked around the clock nowadays same thing she's not in school she's modeling all day and she's on stage all night at Broadway crazy Yeah, she also liked, her mother also liked the fact that a lot of the chorus girls and Broadway stars would end up marrying millionaires. They would get men's attention by being on the stage. And if they were smart about, you know, how they played the game, they could bag a moneyed man. So Mama Nesbitt said, get out there, girl, and make that money. Wow. Yeah, it's I I do not have a lot of fondness for Evelyn's mother as you will see as a as a mom and a mom of a daughter. I am revolted with some of her future actions. So this is exactly how Evelyn piqued the interest of celebrated architect Stanford White who was a big patron of the arts. Especially arts that involved young beautiful women and at 47 years old more than 30 years Evelyn's senior. Gross. So gross. So gross. Spellbound by Evelyn's beauty, Stanford had asked another chorus girl acquaintance to make introductions. Six weeks into Floridora's run, the friend delivered. Both girls meeting Stanford and one of his friends for a boozy lunch followed by the scene I described at the beginning where the party ended back at Stanford's house to enjoy his sumptuous studio and velvet swing. Evelyn paid little attention to Stanford and even preferred his friend because he was much younger and more handsome so yeah so she's like wait I'm here for the 35 year old guy who's really cute not like the 47 year old weirdo right (laughs) and her friend's like no (laughs) so she was a little surprised because she didn't really pay him that much attention when he kept inviting her out and he was like really like networking with her he was like introducing her to everybody who's anybody on Broadway and you know at at first he was not even remotely improper with her so she's like wow he's probably just a really good guy who likes helping people eventually no no, they never are never (laughs) never not once (laughs) which is like so fucked because it's like this happens in Hollywood all the time too like it's fresh meat and this guy comes swooping in and is going to introduce you to everyone and then like take the take credit for your success mm-hmm. and then be like that's all because of me now you owe me suck my yep. d exactly if they so don't make fucked. you suck the d right up from the get you know yeah i think it's, yeah. it's like that's like i almost appreciate that more because then <laughs> you can be like breath. no yeah 
one one d suck per intro please yeah but <laughs> it's like after and it's like i introduced you to all these people now you owe me it's like fuck off dude yeah i didn't read the fine print yeah <laughs> who does yeah so eventually of course her mother wanted to meet this older man who had taken such an interest in her underage daughter and when stanford invited mrs nesbitt to his office she was extremely impressed with him But to be fair, Stanford White was impressive. He had, like I said, designed and erected Madison Square Garden, the Washington Square Arch, several college campuses like the University of Virginia and buildings at NYU, as well as the New York Herald Building and the famed Rosecliff Mansion in Newport, Rhode Island. So he was like the go-to architect of the Gilded Age. Yeah, but she can also be impressed because they're like the same age. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not like... I'm pretty sure she was a couple years younger too. Yeah, it's like mom yeah. can do... Mom can, you know, do whatever mom she Mom can wants. get it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> No, that was not his uh, his interest. He was not interested in ladies of his own age. We will see. He was also a passionate patron of the arts who invested in numerous Broadway productions. He famously romanced several actresses and chorus girls despite having a wife of 16 years when he met Evelyn. You his wedding. Stop it. Uh-huh. His wedding having occurred in the same year that Evelyn was born. Oh, so disgusting. So gross. And also, Mama Nesbitt had to know about this. He's, he's famous. Like, he's a he's like, I got man. married. I got married in 1884. And she's like, that's when I was born. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, cool. And like nothing goes past his mind that thinks that that's <sighs> not cool. And she probably didn't even like think about how inappropriate that is. No, and I mean, we have to give Evelyn a pass here because she is a 16-year-old girl. She's a child. She's a child. Her mother is the one who should know better, you know? Yeah, that's horrible. Mm-hmm. Stanford charmed Mama Nesbitt by emphasizing his philanthropy when it came to Broadway and suggested that he was in the habit of sponsoring young talent, throwing out the names of actresses who had made a name for themselves with his assistance. He suggested he would like to be that type of sponsor for Evelyn, relocating the Nesbitt family. Mm-hmm. So this is what he did. He's just grooming, grooming all of them over here. Sponsor um, my ass. He relocated the Nesbitt family from their sad boarding house apartment into a sumptuous suite of rooms at the Audubon Hotel on Broadway, taking care of all of their bills. And he enrolled her son in an expensive boarding school that was a few miles outside of Philadelphia. So, of course, Mother Nesbitt was thrilled with her daughter's new benefactor, whom she began to turn to for all sorts of material requests, including train fare and accommodations when she wanted to visit friends in Philadelphia. No doubt. He, like, ships the son away, too. He's like, Yeah, he's like, bye. So <laughs> you're going to be in the way, like get yep. out of here. Exactly. So I think, I think basically Florence, Evelyn's mother was like buying all this stuff on his dime and then going back to Philadelphia because all of her friends had kind of, I don't know, like they had kind of like looked down upon her after her husband died and she fell out of fortune because he had been an attorney. So they had had some money. And then after she was broke, basically she fell out of society. So now she's like going back with this guy 
money she's getting from basically pimping out her daughter and like showing off all of her new stuff. So gross. So gross. So Stanford happily doled out the request with added spending money and gallantly suggested he would keep a watchful eye on her 16-year-old daughter while she was out of state. Mrs. Nesbitt did not bat an eye at this inappropriate suggestion. She was just like, thanks for the money. Bye. She's like, so bad. The worst Kris Jenner ever. (laughs) So bad. Stanford was good for his word, spending nearly every day with Evelyn and escorting her to and from her performances in Floridora. One day he suggested his famous photographer friend, Rudolf Eckermeyer, shoot Evelyn. Yeah. These actually were cool pictures too. I'm going to add one of these pictures. Um, Shoot Evelyn in his studio. And when it came time for the shoot, Stanford insisted that Evelyn change into a Japanese kimono. The images show a young girl posing in said kimono with a polar bear rug. So it's like innocent stuff for our time, but very scandalous for 1900. Why? Because of the rug or the kimono? It's the kimono because it's the suggestion that she's naked underneath it. And she's like laying on the rug. Yeah. So it's like post-coital. Exactly. It's very like... Like something just happened and then I put my robe on and, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting too, because there's such a juxtaposition in what the point of it was, which was to look sexual. And she still is so innocent, just looks like a young girl. It doesn't look, it, it, to me, it doesn't come across as overtly sexual. She is guileless, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He invited her to dinner the next evening for a party, but when she arrived, she was surprised to find out that she was the only guest. That is so low. It's the oldest trick in the book. Well, this was in 1901, so maybe that's where where it started. It was the newest trick in the book back then. He's like, I have an idea. I'm going to invite her and same inviting others, but then she'll be the only one that comes. Eureka! Eureka! <laughs> and then that's how the that's where it comes from. Maybe it is. Maybe Stanford White oh, is like trick in the book from 1901. He's, he's a scumbag inventor over here, ahead of his time. So after dinner, Stanford brought her into a secret room that contained a massive four-poster bed. What? Uh huh. She had watched her champagne consumption. But yet the last glass he gave her seemed to taste bitter. And she he did started, not. Mm, he did not. She <gasps> started feeling woozy and needed to lie down. When she awoke from her blackout, she was shocked and horrified to find out she was in the nude in bed with a naked Stanford White. Oh my God, that poor girl. It's heartbreaking. Simon Batts pulled Evelyn's words directly from testimony in the court case that would occur some years later in his book, The Girl on the Velvet Swing. This is what Evelyn said occurred after she regained consciousness. And uh, I I always forget to do trigger warnings, guys. I'm sorry, but the trigger warning for being drugged and raped. So Evelyn said she began screaming and White, alerted by her screams, leaned over to reassure her, telling her not to be concerned. Don't cry, he said, attempting to calm her. Please don't. It's all over. He reached across the bed as if to stroke her, but his movement seemed to only heighten her distress. Q 
Keep quiet, he spoke softly. It's all over. Now you belong to me. Nothing so terrible has happened. Ugh. Oh, my God. He consoled her in a gentle voice, attempting to hold her in his arms to comfort her. You must not worry. Evelyn shrank from his touch, attempted to push him away. She saw on the sheet between her legs splotches of blood, bright red, and her screams became louder and more intense. Because she had been a virgin. Baby. Mm -hmm. You are so pretty, so young, so slim, White continued, seemingly oblivious to her screams, talking as if to himself about Evelyn's naked body. I love you, he murmured, because you are so young and slim. Gross. Okay, this guy is a creep. Like, level one million creep. She fumbled for her clothes, desperate now to hide her body from his gaze. White, still speaking, watched her as she struggled to put on her chemise. Don't tell anybody, he cautioned. What would be the use? It would only make trouble for you and for me. This must be their secret, he told her. She should confide in it to no one. And she should never tell her mother about this night. White had started now to put on his clothes also. Forget it, little girl, he said as he fastened his boots. Let us be happy. So Evelyn returned that night to the Audubon Hotel, to the apartment that she shared with her mother. Her mother obviously is not there. But it was clearly impossible for her to sleep. She stayed awake all night just thinking about what happened to her. Stanford White called on her the next afternoon. He was a little less confident this time. He seemed abashed, even ashamed. He approached her hesitantly, uncertain that she would listen to his words. Evelyn was pissed. She sat staring out of the window, looking across at the apartment buildings on the other side of Broadway. Why won't you look at me, child? White began. Also, gross that he called her child because it's like, that's the person you just raped. So you are beyond disgusting. Yeah, but he like, he loves that she's a child. Yeah, I mean, that's the point. Yeah. I love that you're so young and slim. Ugh, it makes my skin crawl. Seriously. So she said, because I can't. He spoke softly, telling her not to worry, saying that everyone did such things all the time. All his friends, all his acquaintances, he said, did such things. There was no need for her to imagine that the events of the previous night had been unusual. She turned her head to look at him and White could see in her glance that he had aroused her curiosity. Does everybody that you know do these things? She inquired. Yes, he replied, speaking almost nonchalantly. They all do. Do the dancers in Floridora also behave in that way? Evelyn asked. The question posed so innocently seemed to amuse Stanford White. He smiled broadly in a matter that suggested he had lost his earlier trepidation before answering that most assuredly all the dancers in the Floridora troupe behaved that way. His answer seemed to surprise Evelyn. She began to name some of their mutual acquaintances, people prominent on the Broadway stage, and yes, White replied in turn, each one did such things. But it was important, he cautioned Evelyn, to remember that no one ever discussed this behavior. No one mentioned it or admitted to it. Some of the girls in Floridora were too foolish in this regard. They gossiped, and as a consequence, they destroyed their reputations. Oh, God. So, obviously, Evelyn was young, naive, and, of course, worried about the fallout if she spurned him. This man not only paid for her livelihood, but put a roof above her and her mother's head, gave them a generous allowance, and sponsored her brother's private school education. So he had groomed her and her entire family, made them dependent on him, 
and then raped her and now was manipulating her to believe that what occurred was entirely natural and normal. What was that? What was that story that we covered about the guy who who did this with the family but didn't have anything to offer? Oh, yeah, father knows best. God, I can't I can't remember which episode that was. It's a first. I usually remember those. I think it's the yeah. fancy brain. It 100% um, but, is. Yeah. But it, it was like a I think that was like a top 15 though. That was like a top 15 episode. It might have been around 15. So, yeah, that was not Father Knows Best. It was called Father of the Year. That guy did the same thing where he groomed an entire family. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so wild. It's like, it's like this guy obviously has a lot that he can offer, but it's crazy that through time, men have figured out how to manipulate and continue to put women down without even having anything to offer. Like, yeah, that guy was not rich. He like got over a turkey or something. Like that was he like would bring his- over like Pizza Hut and like yeah. McDonald's and stuff. That poor family. Yeah, this guy had a lot going on, and he was a lot better looking actually. I'll um, I mean, he still wasn't good looking. Stanford White. He he kind of looked like Derek Waters from um Drunk History, but with like a mustache. <laughs> Stop. Yeah, evil Derek Waters. <laughs> He has like a big mustache that will, will of course put up a photo of him. Yeah, it's insane. But that's exactly, I mean, I've said it like 13 times already and we are barely into this episode, but just it's it's crazy to me that this story happened 120 years ago and so many things are still the same. Yeah. Well, it's sad. So Evelyn didn't really have another choice or she felt like she didn't have another choice. So she just acted like everything was okay. Like millions of women have done since time began and continue to do when they are date raped and they don't know what to do and they don't know how to go forward and they don't want to cause a fuss or make people believe, like make people not believe them or they're scared, you know? So she just like went along with it. Um, So she became a frequent companion of Stanford's. For months, the relationship went on until Evelyn discovered a black book filled with women's names and birth dates and check marks. Ew. Yeah, she was, she knew he was married, of course, but she definitely thought she was like his one and only as far as other women went. So she was horrified to realize that she was not the sole object of his affections and kind of humiliated that several of the women that had slept with Stanford or been raped by him, more likely, were friends and acquaintances of the couple and socialized with them. So she was like, oh, that doesn't feel good. She had long known about Stanford's wife, but she's like a typical teenager and she wasn't especially jealous of a woman who was 20 years and had 20 pounds on her, especially when Stanford's like, I love that you're so young and slim and so gross. <laughs> now she's like jealous of all of his other companions, you know, because they're like her age. And I've got to tell you, honey, they're going to keep getting younger, you know? Yeah. Stanford had never promised anything more than money and his occasional companionship, nor had he made demands of her. So Evelyn began to date to see if she could arouse his jealousy. Okay. She dated several scions of wealthy families, young men closer to her age, who had also spotted her on stage in Floridora. 
But all of these relationships ended when she was inevitably passed over for the men to propose to respectable young women from well-to-do families. Stop. Mm-hmm. So she was going out and dating. I don't know what dating in like 1903 looks like. So I don't know what the courting process was for her, but I know that she would be seen with a guy and then he would like basically just fuck off and end up marrying somebody else. The only man who she came close to marriage with at this time was handsome John or Jack Barrymore, who would go on to become one of the most famous actors in Hollywood and is the grandfather to Drew Barrymore. At the time that he wooed Evelyn, she was 17, recently having finished her run on Floridora and started in a new production called A Wild Rose, and he was a wayward 20-year-old. He had so far resisted the family business of acting and was living hand-to-mouth as an illustrator. The two were in infatuated with each other, Barrymore later saying about Evelyn, she was the most maddening woman, the first woman I ever loved. And he proposed marriage to her. Stanford and Mama Nesbitt strenuously opposed, saying that Barrymore was a womanizing, alcoholic wastrel. They all were back then. Yeah. (laughs) At least he's not a rapist. (laughs) Yeah. Stanford proposed to Mama Nesbitt that he should fund Evelyn's higher education by sending her off to boarding school in western New Jersey, which would serve the purpose of getting her away from Jack Barrymore. When her show flopped after four months, Evelyn rejected Barrymore's marriage proposal and willingly went to the DeMille School for Girls. While in New Jersey, Evelyn suffered from a near-fatal case of appendicitis that resulted in her leaving the school and being treated in a private hospital where Stanford White's private doctor could administer to her. Ugh. Mm-hmm. Her medical records were zealously guarded, and many over history have suggested that what Evelyn was truly suffering from was actually a botched abortion. That would be with Jack Barrymore, the most likely father. Barrymore later feared being forced to testify at trial about Evelyn's appendectomy, suggesting to friends that she had had two appendectomies that he had known about at least. Wink, wink. Oh, Oh, God, this poor girl. When Evelyn returned to New York... Barrymore already had moved on with a new girlfriend, and she found herself being courted by Harry Thaw, a 31-year-old wealthy playboy with buckets of inherited money. Awesome. Yeah. So this is more her style. Like, this guy's, like, still older than her, but he's not ancient. He's unmarried, and he is rich as fuck. His father, William Thaw, had been an early investor in the Pennsylvania Railroad, so he was a railroad baron, and then he had purchased thousands of acres of coal fields in western Pennsylvania. He was a generous philanthropist, donating millions upon millions of dollars to Pittsburgh's cultural and educational institutions, yet even with all of those donations, his estate at the time of his death in 1889 was still worth more than $12 million, which is about $350 million in today's money. Holy shit. Crazy. And he gave away so much of it. By the time Evelyn crossed paths with Harry, he was living off an $80,000 annual allowance, which is about $2.5 million a year in our money. Wow. I like this guy. I know. And he just like travels too. 
Love Perry it. had attempted to woo Evelyn in early 1902, but she had still been in the thrall of Jack Barrymore and paid him little heed. He's not a very good looking guy. He's kind of like weird and like dorky looking. Um, we'll okay. Picture of him. He's kind of but like other than that nondescript white guy. So it's like there's definitely no, not anyone that I can think of that looks like him. He's just kind of like this intense, like nerdy looking guy. By early 1903, she was single and ready to mingle, and he was back in New York after an extended trip to Europe and ready to pick up where he had left off trying. Evelyn was impressed and envious of his travels, so in February of 1903, he proposed that Evelyn and her mother, of course, as chaperone, join him on an all-expenses-paid grand tour of Europe during his next jaunt which was scheduled to take place in May of that year. I mean, how do you say no to that? Wow. Evelyn was thrilled, but Mrs. Nesbitt, not so much. Mama Nesbitt had recently reconnected with a stockbroker friend of her late husband's, and the two were planning to be wed. She wasn't much interested in being away from her fiancé for weeks on end. When she raised her concerns to Stanford White, he, of course, objected to Evelyn going away with Harry Thaw, whom he claimed had a terrible reputation. Wow, he is just a cock blocker, huh? Uh-huh, he's a cock blocker, and he is the pot calling the kettle black over here. Wow. Stanford said Thaw had a reputation as an obnoxious, often hostile individual, someone who had been seen to lose his temper at the slightest provocation, flying into a rage over some trivial incident. There were rumors that he was a drug addict who indulged in heroin and cocaine, and even worse, there were whispers among the smart set that Harry Thaw frequented sex workers, tying them with restraints and whipping them. None of the clubs in New York, White told Florence Nesbitt, were willing to admit Harry Thaw as a member. There had always been a blackball whenever he applied. His wealth would normally have been sufficient. The Union Club or the Knickerbocker Club would have admitted him, but his reputation always denied him the privilege. Nothing good could come from an association with such a man as Harry Thaw. So raping children is okay, but tying girls up is not. Yeah, that's what he's saying. What a piece of shit. I think this is a little bit of projection on Stanford White's part over here. So he very much objected to them going. He said that he was like, if she allowed him to go, allowed Evelyn to go, that, that Florence would be putting Evelyn still only 18 years old in harm's way. What would they do in an emergency? To whom would they return for help? There was no telling what this dangerous man Harry Thaw would do, and they would be foolish to take the risk. So Harry, of course, vehemently denied all of these rumors, claiming they were the work of an evil blackmailer who was attempting to extort money from him by spreading false claims. Evelyn, who had by now spent considerable time with Harry, had never seen him use drugs or behave inappropriately, so she vouched for him and begged her mother to chaperone her. Begrudgingly, her mother acquiesced and the three sailed to England and then on to Paris. Good. Stanford, ever the generous patron, slipped a $500 letter of credit to Mama Nesbitt just in case the dastardly thaw attempted to pull any stunts and the women were in trouble. So that is like $500 back then. So that's like 15 grand in today's money. Wow. Yeah. 
Harry wooed Evelyn in Paris, spending their days touring the Louvre, having long boozy lunches and afternoons at Cartier, where Harry was the VIP customer. Like he would just buy her all of this jewelry. He lavished money and attention on young Evelyn, purchasing her an extensive wardrobe of couture evening wear. Wow. I mean, that's the treatment. That's the Paris treatment. Yeah, that's like the Paris I've never experienced. <laughs> long. Well, I've done long boozy lunches, but that's about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the type of experiences you can have because money means absolutely nothing to you. I love that he's like treating her and taking her out and like buying her all the things. And they're yeah, having like boozy having lunches. having a great time. So... They hobnobbed with high society expats and had an altogether wonderful time. However, she was taken aback when Harry proposed marriage. She was only 18. They had only known each other for a short time. And she was concerned about what his family would think. They were very well to do. And like I said, actresses at the time didn't have such a great reputation. More importantly, Harry had made several comments regarding chastity in the past. And she needed to set the record straight about her involvement with Stanford White no, and the fact that she girl. was no longer. A I think that that's really it's such a hard conversation, <sighs> and the fact that she like you know didn't even try to hide it that she was like, "I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not a virgin," you know, and then to be so vulnerable as to share what happened to her, you know. Oh, God. So did she do it? So she told him. So when she revealed what had happened that fateful night with Stanford when he had drugged and raped her, Harry went absolutely wild with rage. Evelyn was initially relieved to unburden herself, but then Harry's reaction kind of shocked her and overwhelmed her. Um, According to Simon Batts' book, he had listened intently to her narrative, all the while nervously biting his fingernails, his whole body tense with anxiety, his face twisted in an expression of disgust. Evelyn knew that she told a shocking story, a violent tale of deceit and deception, but she was taken aback, nevertheless, by the severity of Thaw's reaction. He had started to sob. He had buried his face in his hands, and now he was no longer sitting in his chair, but had begun pacing nervously around the room, his shoulders hunched together, his left hand tightly clutching his right forearm. The beast, the filthy beast, Thaw's voice, now raising almost to a shout, startled her. A 16-year-old girl, damn him. Evelyn had started to speak, attempting to hush his words, but he had already returned to his chair, anxiously interrogating her further about the rape. What role, he demanded, had her mother played in this awful event? Good question. Why had Florence Nesbitt entrusted her daughter to take care of such a man as White? Had it been negligence on her part? Or had she deliberately put Evelyn in harm's way on account of the gifts that she had anticipated receiving from White? Stanford White had won their trust by his apparent generosity, but they should have never accepted his gifts. In any case, Harry told Evelyn her story had not diminished his love for her. She had said that the rape had somehow tainted her, that White's act had disgraced her, and that she was not worthy to be his wife. Oh, this poor baby. But that was not true. The rape had not diminished her in his eyes. He still desired that they should be married. Oh, what a legend. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I think back then, too, it's so easy to just, like, he could have just dismissed her immediately. You know what I mean? I yeah, don't think that they had been any. like, oh, shit, I'm sorry that happened to you, but mm, no dice for my wife, you know? 
Yeah. Yeah. So that's really, that's really cool. Yeah. He stuck by her. Evelyn was still a little hesitant. She was not ready to give him an answer. And Harry was too upset, too distraught at that moment to push his suit any further. Harry and Evelyn spent that fall working their way through Europe, eventually hiring a professional chaperone in London to replace Evelyn's mother, who had grown weary of Harry Thaw and wanted to get back to her betrothed. You can imagine that Harry obviously didn't have a lot of respect for her at this point. Yeah, you think? Mm -hmm. So the two definitely did not get along. I mean, you'd think a fortune hunter like Mrs. Nesbitt would be like all in on Harry Thaw because he was so rich, but they just- But she's already set up with someone else and like has everything taken care of with the other dudes, I mean, she so clearly she, like, doesn't care about her daughter. She only cares about her own well-being, you know? So listen to this trip though. So after she goes back, they hire a woman in London to be like a professional chaperone. And then they go from London back to Paris on to Holland through Germany- they spend three weeks in a castle in the Austrian Alps and then on to Lucerne, Bern, and Zurich before returning to Paris. Wow. That is some freaking trip. In Paris, Evelyn was horrified to realize that Harry had spilled her intimate and traumatic rape story to several of his friends. How? So like Telegram? Had, no, he had like told people. Like, I don't know when, like maybe when, like to other expats and stuff. I don't know if she wasn't around or he met with some guys at a bar. But okay. somehow through the grapevine, like through one expat telling another person and then somebody going back to New York, the story had made its way stateside. And I think, you know, I'm not going to give him much credit because he should have never done this, but I think he was just really upset about it. And he was like, you know, that guy's a fucking scumbag, you know, like talking about yeah. Stanford White, essentially. Yeah. Well, and he obviously like knows that white or someone like him is out to get him too, because he said that people yes. are blackmailing him all the time. So they like were already uh, bitter enemies. And I think yeah. that the fact that they both had this very strong interest in Evelyn only made their rivalry worse, obviously. Um, so he was looking for reasons to talk shit about Stanford White, you know? They're just both boys unfortunately but at least harry stood by her but he shouldn't have yeah he shouldn't have exposed that exactly so when mrs nesbitt heard the rumor this is before evelyn even got home from europe she immediately confronted stanford white who of course denied the allegations stanford claimed it was entirely an invention of harry thaw who had a vendetta against him which they're kind of in a big fight. So he set that up before mm -hmm. the trip even happened. Yeah. yeah. Mrs. Nesbitt chose to believe Stanford, whom she liked better and, of course, benefited from. But also, I think that it made her feel less guilty. If if she knew for real that this guy that she left her 16-year-old with had drugged and raped her she would have to face what a shitty mom she was if yeah. she believes stanford white even if she's deluding herself she doesn't feel like she did anything wrong yeah very self-serving evelyn returned to new york in late october of 1903 without harry who was attending to business in paris and immediately began to be called on by stanford 
Evelyn was eager to put her association with Stanford behind her, but he begged her to consider a cast of friends and acquaintances who claimed they had been witness to Harry's tawdry and abusive behavior. Some of the men were highly reputable, and Evelyn began to question what she knew about the man she was considering marrying. Stanford even set up a meeting with his attorney who suggested to Evelyn that Thaw had once been sued for assault, but there was no record as the Thaw family fortune quickly settled out of court. Evelyn became suspicious, however, when Stanford's attorney tried to talk her into signing an affidavit suggesting there had been something bad that had happened with Thaw while they were in the Austrian Alps and even going as far as attempting to like basically say something in an affidavit about her relationship with Stanford White that would exonerate White for the rape. So she's like, wait a minute, I'm not getting tricked into signing something like to let him off the hook, essentially, you know? Okay. So Evelyn left the office thoroughly confused and initially refused to entertain Harry when he returned from Europe. So they ended up running into each other at a restaurant. And when pressed, Evelyn revealed why she had been shunning him. So she's like, I don't know if I want any of you messy bitches, you know? Yeah, this is just like too much. Too much for an 18-year-old girl. For these like two millionaire men who are supposedly grown adults to be like putting her in the middle of. Yeah. So Evelyn told Harry she had heard horrible stories about him, reports that he had lured young girls to his apartment. There was one account that he had scalded a young girl with boiling water. She had also heard that he was a morphine addict, that he frequently took cocaine and other drugs. It had been all too terrible to hear such stories and she didn't want to see him anymore. Harry listened impassively, saying nothing as Evelyn explained her reluctance to continue their friendship. He merely shook his head from time to time, waiting for her to finish speaking. Finally, she paused expectantly, surprised that Harry had shown so little reaction to her words. I see, he began speaking with an air of resignation, that they have been making a fool of you. There was no anger in his voice, no indignation at the accusations that his enemies had leveled against his reputation. Stanford White, he explained, had always hated him and had done everything possible to destroy him. The reports that he had abused young girls were common currency among the blackmailers who had attempted to get his money. White had merely repeated the rumors that he, Harry, had heard so many times before. But there was nothing new in such gossip, he told Evelyn, and no truth in such tales. Did Evelyn have any evidence apart from the gossip that she had heard to to persuade her that White's stories might be true? She had just spent several months traveling with Thaw. If I had taken morphine, he asked, wouldn't it have shown itself at one time or another? Stanford White knew a great deal about such things more than he, Harry Thaw, had ever learned. And if anyone were guilty of such behavior, it was White. So ridiculous. Yep. It's a case of he said, he said, and who was Evelyn to trust? The man who had drugged and raped her or the man who had just squired her around Europe, you know? So of course she believed Harry, you know? Harry took Evelyn back to Europe with one of his male friends as the chaperone, but naturally tongues wagged at the risque situation of the young unmarried couple traveling together virtually alone. Mary Thaw, Harry's mother, was beside herself that her son was so publicly cavorting with a lowly actress when her other children had married titled nobility and a Carnegie. Ew. 
Mm-hmm. She was a snub. Mary, the mothers in this, like the the dudes are pieces of work, but like the mothers in this are so shitty. Her, well, the dudes didn't get raised by no one. Yeah, exactly. I mean, everyone's just fucking terrible. Harry, however, didn't give a fig what his mother thought and renewed his marriage proposal to Evelyn. Evelyn somewhat reluctantly accepted. She, I don't know if she was ever madly in love with Harry, but she really liked him. She also knew his mother didn't approve of her. And I think she was a little hesitant about that situation, but she needed financial security as her Broadway offers were beginning to dry up. And Stanford White was no longer financially supporting her. What a piece of shit. Of course. Harry and Evelyn were married on April 4th, 1905, in an almost insultingly small private ceremony. Reportedly, Mary Thaw refused to throw a large wedding because she so strenuously opposed the marriage. Wow. A petty. Harry picked out Evelyn's wedding dress, which was a black traveling suit, which further scandalized the high society set. Love. The newspapers declared the former chorus girl the new mistress of millions, and the couple settled down in one of the Thaw family mansions in Pittsburgh after a brief honeymoon to the American Southwest. The couple were bored in Pittsburgh and soon began to plan another European tour. They would go to New York City to depart and catch up with friends along the way. Evelyn was particularly excited to reconnect with her theater friends, and they booked tickets for the opening night of the new musical comedy Mamselle Champagne on June 25th at Madison Square Garden. Harry and Evelyn dined with two of Harry's friends before the show at a stylish restaurant called Café Martine. One of the men, Truxton Beale, was explaining how he beat an attempted murder rap after his attack on a San Francisco news editor. The hmm. editor had published insults about Beale's wife, and Beale had called on the man at his home demanding an apology. Eventually, the argument became so heated that both men drew their guns. Beale came out unscathed, but the editor was badly injured, but alive. The jury at Beale's trial acquitted him of deadly assault, accepting his defense that he was protecting the honor of his wife. Okay. After their meal in the story, the quartet went to Madison Square Garden to take in the show. Unfortunately, Mademoiselle Champagne was a snooze, and the group decided to take off partway through. As they were leaving, Evelyn lost track of where Harry was, and then she noticed Stanford White directly in front of the stage. Then, to her horror, she saw her husband behind him. Harry was aiming a gun at White. At that very what? moment. What? Mm-hmm. What? In the Broadway theater. I was going to oh, say, no, why are they this at- is not, This is Madison Square Garden. In yeah, Madison gonna- Square Garden. I was like, why are they going to Madison? Why are they going to MSG? Like, that's, yeah, that's his spot. Like, it's his spot. Mm-hmm. So... I think that Harry had kind of planned this the whole time. Obviously. And even like being like, hey, let's leave in the middle of it, you know? Wow. So at the same time that Evelyn noticed where Harry was standing, Stanford also noticed Harry Thaw and his pistol. But before he could even rise to his feet, Harry fired. This account is from the girl on the velvet swing. The first bullet entered White's shoulder, tearing at his flesh and splintering the bone. 
White slumped backward, sending his wine glass crashing to the floor, and a second bullet hit him in the face directly beneath his left eye. Thaw fired again, and the third bullet hit White in the mouth, smashing his front teeth. Stanford White died instantly, his body falling to the ground face forward, a thin rivulet of blood trickling outward from his head and slowly spreading across the floor. Harry Thaw stood motionless, staring impassively at his victim, his gun still in hand. Two of the actors on the stage had engaged in a duel only moments before, and nearby spectators, those seated close to the stage, believed that the shooting of Stanford White was part of the play. Mm-hmm. But Lionel Lawrence, watching from the wings, had witnessed the murder and already realized that it might precipitate a general panic among the audience. The chorus girls on stage had seen the shooting also, and they stopped singing, their voices trailing away in their bewilderment. Sing, girls, sing, Lawrence called to the chorus girls. For God's sake, sing, don't stop. Wow. (laughs) Stopped playing, the musicians still staring at the spot where White's body lay motionless. The entire ensemble paralyzed by confusion and fear. Keep the music going, Lawrence cried, urging the orchestra to continue, hoping to reassure the audience and prevent a panic. Harry Thaw, seemingly oblivious to the commotion, raised his right arm above his head, holding the gun by the barrel as if to indicate to the audience that he intended no further harm. He now started to walk slowly down the center aisle toward the rear of the theater. And as he advanced, the spectators started to rise to their feet, craning their necks to get a better view and to discover the cause of the disturbance. Lionel Lawrence stepped from the wings, striding to the front of the stage, holding his arms in front of him with a gesture meant to reassure the audience that there was no cause for alarm. A most unfortunate accident has happened, Lawrence called out from the stage. The management regrets to ask that the audience leave at once in an orderly manner. There is no danger, only an accident that will prevent a continuance of the performance. Paul Broody, the duty fireman, was the first person to reach Thaw, approaching him from behind and taking the gun, a blue steel twenty-two caliber pistol, from his hand. Warner Paxton, a member of the audience, also came up behind Thaw, and both men, Broody on the left, Paxton on the right, held Thaw, escorted him slowly down the center aisle toward the elevator at the rear of the theater. There was no resistance, no attempt to escape on the part of Thaw. He had willingly given up his gun. And as he walked with his captors towards the exit, he started to speak, telling them why he had shot Stanford White. I did it, Thaw explained, turning to address Broody, because he ruined my wife. Ruined. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, you're not so cool with it after all, are you, bro? Yo, you just ruined your life. You just ruined your life and her life because... Everyone's going to find out exactly what happened now. Immediately after that, Harry was taken to jail and Evelyn was left shocked and confused and, of, of course, upset. In the days leading up to his trial, the newspapers were all over the case, with Stanford White, the victim, being put on trial through the media and Harry Thaw, the murderer, clearly winning the public side. There was great sympathy, understandably, for a man who murdered his wife's rapist. Right? Right. I mean, several young women, also Broadway actresses, corroborated Evelyn's tale for the investigation and defense. So this wasn't Stanford White's first or only time, obviously. 
There was talk of a cabal of powerful men who similarly abused women in this fashion, and the murder shed light on what many believed to be the moral bankruptcy of some New York City high society members. This sentiment reigned supreme, and Harry Thaw was considered somewhat of a vigilante hero heading into his trial. I figured that was going to happen. Uh-huh. The district attorney realized that this would be a hard case to try, and hoping to spare Evelyn the indignity of testifying publicly about her rape, offered a plea deal that Harry should state he was insane and be committed to a mental asylum for a minimum period. Harry refused to acknowledge a claim that he was crazy because he didn't want to ruin his reputation and was Mm. confident that he would be acquitted because all of the newspapers are on his side and everybody's telling him he did everything right. Yeah, but he still killed someone. He still killed someone. And also he apparently didn't consider what being forced to testify and then endure a brutal cross-examination would do to his young wife's reputation. So he's like, I don't want to be labeled crazy, but I don't care that my wife is going to have to go through the most terrible, humiliating, awful experience of her entire life. And everyone in New York City and even across the country and beyond is going to be discussing whether or not she actually got raped. Yeah, 120 years later on a podcast. (laughs) On a podcast. Oh my God. Poor baby girl. Oh, baby girl. (sighs) Wow, that that is a terrible legacy. It's not, none of this is her fault. Well, obviously none of this is her fault, but like at the time, this was just the worst thing that could possibly have happened to her. The DA cast doubt on her rape claims in order to negate the defense's powerful narrative and in the process brought up the money she and her mother had received from White both before and after the alleged rape and the numerous instances in which the two were seen together socially after the fact. Newspapers published every grisly detail of the night she was raped and then reported on the veracity of her claims. The DA entered a letter that she had written to Stanford from Europe and the newspapers printed it questioning why she would speak so cordially to the man who had raped her. Because he groomed her. Yeah, because he groomed her. And of course, they're not. This is the same shit that attorneys pull though on rape victims to this day. Yep. So, like I said, not much has changed here. And the nuances of grooming at least are a little bit more known nowadays than they were back in 1904 over here. But it's only because of brave women who have, like, come forth and spoken about it. 100%. So thank you, Evelyn Nesbitt, even if you got pushed into this cruelly, you know? Ugh. In an effort to save her husband from the electric chair, Evelyn was forced to permanently tarnish her own reputation and give up any dream of returning to her acting career or privileged position in polite society. The jury fortunately all believed that Evelyn was indeed telling the truth, but though they had sympathy for her and her husband, the matter at hand was whether Harry Thaw should be acquitted of murder. And on that, the men could not decide because whether or not he had a reason to, he still murdered somebody with thousands of people as witnesses. Yeah, it's like, if that's if that's going to be cool, then like we might as well just go back to like the wild, wild west. Exactly. So. After multiple days of deliberation, the jury was hopelessly deadlocked. The judge declared a mistrial and a second trial was set to begin on January 6th, 1908. 
The Thaws hired a new attorney who strongly suggested that Harry's strategy should be establishing insanity this time around. So the attorney's, the new attorney's name was Littleton. The jurors in the first trial, Littleton reminded Mary Thaw, had all disregarded Evelyn Nesbitt's testimony about the rape, each one telling the newspaper that he had voted only according to his judgment of Thaw's mental state at the time of the murder. It would be foolish, Littleton argued, to claim a second time that the rape of Evelyn Nesbitt provided sufficient justification for the murder of Stanford White. Their best strategy, their only strategy, according to Littleton, was to persuade the jury that Harry had been insane when he killed White, that he had been mentally incompetent since childhood, and that he was still impaired now. The judge would commit him to an asylum, but eventually, sooner probably rather than later, the lawyers would seek his release. I mean, they have scads of money, of course, that they can throw out there. Yes. And he would, they would just like get a doctor to sign off and say he regained his sanity and he'd get out in a matter of weeks. So this seems like, you know, a legit strategy. This time, the DA offered no plea bargain and the defense team set to work showing that Thaw had always been mentally unwell and that the rape of his wife had simply triggered the underlying condition. Mary and Harry Thaw were reluctant to accept this strategy, but after 18 months behind bars, Harry was prepared to do anything to shorten his sentence. Okay, good. Mary described a nervous, irritable, anxiety-ridden child who had grown into a young man incapable of achieving due to mental agitation. Teachers discussed Harry quitting or being expelled from three higher education institutions, including Harvard. Evelyn once again went to bat for her husband, describing her rape in detail and Harry's hysterical response to her admission in Europe. She claimed that Harry had been so disturbed by Stanford's conduct, both the rape and the subsequent efforts to smear his name, that he had once attempted suicide in her presence. A psychologist hired by the defense determined Harry to be manic depressive, who almost certainly was experiencing an episode when the murder had occurred. In the end, the jury agreed with the defense wholeheartedly. They acquitted Thaw on account of insanity. However, the Thaws were in for a shock when the judge declared the sentence. It had been Harry's attorney's assertion that a not guilty sentence by reason of insanity would be punishable by remanding Harry to a private psychiatric institution where he would wait comfortably in a private room that the Thaws paid for. And then they would get a doctor to declare him now sane in a matter of weeks and release him. Instead, the judge ruled as follows. An obligation Judge Dowling began now devolves upon the court to discharge its duty. Upon the testimony in this case, apart from any other consideration that might arise, the court is satisfied that the enlargement of the defendant would be dangerous to public safety. It is ordered that Harry K. Thaw be detained in safe custody and be sent to Matawan State Hospital there to be kept in said hospital until thence discharged by due course of the law. Matawan was a state hospital for the criminally insane, and there was no way to determine if or when Harry would be released. Yeah. And the hospital had a gruesome reputation. I mean, it's a turn-of-the-century mental asylum for the criminally insane. This is not a good place. Yeah. No, thank you. No. 
Madawin closed in 1971, but was located in Fishkill, New York and Dutchess County, which is like 40 minutes away from my new house. Yeah, I feel like we, I, don't I usually drive through Dutchess? Uh-huh. I feel like well, I we are yeah. in Dutchess right now. So like where I lived in Millerton is Dutchess, but like right on the border. Okay. So it's like real close to where I live. And Fishkill is like really close to um, Pleasant Valley too, where we covered that, that, that other case. Yeah. The church case. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's kind of like, it's some people said it's in Fishkill and some people said it's like on the outskirts of Beacon. So it's in that area. Okay. Um, I think it still stands. I like Google image searched it and it looks creepy as hell, as you can imagine. And I think it's just abandoned, but if I, if I'm down there, I'll take some pictures. So some notable inmates at Matawan were Lizzie Halliday, an Irish-American serial killer who was the first woman ever executed in the electric chair and who killed a nurse while she was residing at the hospital. Oh, no. Yeah, that poor nurse. Um, She killed a couple husbands, so I might do a whole episode on her at some point because her story is pretty wild. And also Valerie Solanas, who attempted to murder Andy Warhol, was kept here too. No way. Mm -hmm. The place was scary and Harry was bitter to have lost the significant perks he had held in jail. He could not get booze, cigars, fancy dinners, and he didn't have private accommodations here. He was thrown in with the murderers, rapists, and arsonists, just like everyone else, which is kind of fair. He is still a murderer. Yeah. You know, it's like you got a lot of money, but you still killed a man just like everybody else who's here. Yep. His attorneys were hopeful. A year or two earlier, a well-known stockbroker had shot and killed a gambler and he had received the same sentence as Harry and he was out in a mere five weeks. So they're like, okay, there's precedent for this. Maybe we can just get you out real quick. Yeah. Unfortunately for Harry, this was not going to be the case for him. Mary Thaw found early on that Superintendent Robert Lamb wouldn't give in to their wealth and privilege. After three failed hearings over five years, the Thaws were beginning to lose hope. In that period, Mary had hired legal teams to represent other patients who had been horrifically treated and even brought in undercover investigative journalists to reveal the terrible conditions at Matawan. She claimed no it way. Uh-huh, she was like, okay. This guy won't release my son, so I'm going to make him look like shit. So that's kind of badass. It is totally badass. I mean, she was also, though, doing a really good job by, like, throwing her money behind showing off what atrocity was going on so there could be prison reform, essentially, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, she claimed it was altruistic, but her aim was to oust Robert Lamb, and she ultimately succeeded. After that, she bribed the new superintendent to release her son, but the man was caught and fired before he could actually let Harry free. Wow. Yeah. During this period, Harry and Evelyn's marriage became completely undone and new terrifying accusations were levied against Harry. So this is when we were like totally on team Harry. And now we're kind of like, Hmm. Mary Thaw had never accepted Evelyn as her daughter-in-law and only tolerated her during the trials because her testimony was so imperative to freeing Harry. Now she's set to prove Evelyn was unfaithful and hired several private eyes to stalk the poor young girl. 
There was nothing inappropriate to report, yet Mary still kept a running tally of any male, young or old, who came to call on Evelyn and presented the list to Harry as proof that his young bride was a cheat and only with him for his money. Mary turned Harry against Evelyn and the family made life so unpleasant for her that both parties finally agreed to an annulment and a hefty financial settlement. Evelyn would receive $15,000 immediately and then $12,000 annually for life to initiate the annulment and claim all culpability for the dissolution of the marriage in the media. So that's a really good deal. $15,000 is the equivalent of about $425,000. Wow. A year. A year. Yep. Well, not nothing. Not nothing. She's been, her whole life has been ruined by this situation. Evelyn was understandably psyched about this and began annulment proceedings until the three $5,000 checks she had received from Mary Thaw bounced. You are lying. Mary is such a bitch. Mary never had any intention of giving Evelyn a single cent. She had wanted her to start the annulment process and she was hoping that it would be pushed through before Evelyn realized she had gotten scammed. It is so fucked up. So dirty and low. And when they have so much money, come on. Ugh. God. Evelyn immediately withdrew her request for an annulment and Harry in return rescinded the scant financial support he had been giving her, forcing her to move to a small studio apartment living off the generosity of the few wealthy friends she had left. She eventually moved to Germany where she gave birth to a baby boy in late 1910 she named Russell Thaw and claimed was Harry's. This was impossible because not only was the couple on terrible terms, the last record of Evelyn visiting the asylum had occurred an entire year before Russell's birth. So unless he was three months late, then it would be bloody unlikely. Yeah. Yeah, that's honey. Not looking too hot. No, that's not a good claim to his In the third hearing, Evelyn had little to lose as any effort to extricate financial support from the thaws had failed. She told the court that she was manipulated and forced to testify to her rape as well as exaggerate details. Furthermore, she claimed Harry had threatened to kill her if she did not testify and say exactly as he wished. Ooh, now do we believe that? Mm, I don't know. She's really mad at him. So there's another witness, though. So Evelyn went on to say she also found pornographic drawings of young girls bound and whipped in his home and in his cell while visiting him in Matawan. This corroborated the testimony of a woman named Susan Merrill, who had claimed in the second hearing that Harry Thaw had rented rooms from her for the purpose of auditioning, in quotes, young actresses. The girls who attended these so-called meetings were as young as 15 or 16 and often left Mr. Thaw's company beaten and bruised. She testified that she had heard a young girl screaming and upon entering the room to come to the woman's aid, she found Harry whipping her. Susan said this was hardly the first or the last time and she was also responsible for paying off the girls Harry injured, often to the tune of three or four thousand dollars upwards of a hundred grand in today's money holy shit yeah 
That's some major hush money. That's a major hush money. Whoa. Harry, of course, emphatically denied the reports, and there was no proof that what the landlady said was true. She claimed to have received her payments and all the payments to the girls in cash paid extra to keep the affairs strictly off the books. Neither was there any proof, though, that Susan Merrill had been attempting to blackmail the Thaws or receive compensation from the district attorney. So there's no paper trail that would say that this is true, but there's also no paper trail saying that she's like doing this for some other benefit, like Susan's not a reliable witness. Yeah. Madawan found her testimony compelling enough to refuse to release Harry. After five years of living in the asylum, Harry and Mary Thaw resorted to an illegal escape. Harry snuck past the guards as a dairyman guided his milk cart and horses through the gate and simply walked out of the asylum on August 17th, 1913. That's kind of some G shit right there. Just casually strolling out. There, Richard Butler, a gangster from Hell's Kitchen who had been employed by the Thaws to deliver Harry to Canada, waited for him in an idling late model Packard limousine. The men made a beeline for the Connecticut border. They crossed over like right in Danbury, which is pretty close to where we live right now. Yep. Hearing their limo would draw too much attention as they traveled through rural New Hampshire and Vermont on their way, the men ditched the fancy car in favor of a seat on the Grand Trunk Railway on a line that connected to Montreal through Portland, Maine. However, while on the train passing through New Hampshire, Harry was recognized by a deputy sheriff named Burley Kelsey on his way home. Simon Batts recreated the conversation on the train based on newspaper reports and testimony at a later trial. He he said it went down like this. This is so crazy. Kelsey nodded a greeting as he sat down opposite Harry Thaw, but neither man said anything and Kelsey started to read his newspaper. He glanced up as the conductor came through the carriage checking the tickets and he looked again more closely at Thaw seated opposite him. I know who you are, Kelsey said suddenly. You are Harry Thaw. I feel pretty sure that you are Harry Thaw, aren't you? Thaw hesitated, reluctant to confirm his identity, but then he started to talk. You're right, he confessed, not knowing that Kelsey was law enforcement. But I am a perfectly free man here. He had left New York, he explained, and there were no grounds for his extradition from New Hampshire. The jury at his trial had acquitted him of the murder of Stanford White, which is true. They said he was not guilty by reason of insanity. Yeah. And he had not, therefore, been convicted of any crime. Nobody can hold me, he added, a note of defiance in his voice, for they haven't anything on me. I was acquitted of that murder and they can't extradite me. No, I guess not, Kelsey replied. How did you recognize me, Thaw asked. Kelsey pointed to his paper. From the picture in the newspaper, which I am now reading, he said. There on the front page was a photograph of Thaw along with his account of an escape from Matawan. Come on, bro. Oh, that is too good. That is too good. You can't make that shit up. You cannot make that shit up. But also like, why why didn't they just take their chances with the limo? Like, yes, it would look out of place. But otherwise, he, he he's a famously wealthy human being who was in like the O.J. Simpson trial of the turn of the century. Oh, what does he my think God. is going to happen? Of course, he's going to be in the newspaper. 
Money can't buy you street smarts. No, it cannot. <laughs> oh my God. Where are you going? Kelsey asked. I'm on my way to take a boat at Montreal for England, Thaw replied, saying that his sister lived in London, that he expected to stay there for some time. The train started to slow down as it approached Colebrook, which was Kelsey's stop. Kelsey rose from his seat, collected his belongings, saying that he had arrived at his destination and wished Thaw a pleasant journey. He had thought about arresting Thaw on the spot, but what charge? Harry Thaw was correct in saying that the jury had acquitted him, and it was true that in the eyes of the law, he had not committed a crime. He had walked away from the Matawan Asylum, but it was not evident that he had thereby broken the law. And anyway, did Kelsey have the authority to detain Thaw? He had no warrant for Thaw's arrest, and Thaw had committed no crime in New Hampshire. Thaw had... Oh, my God. (laughs) Thaw had indicated during their conversation that he believed he was traveling on the through train from Portland into Canada as far as Montreal. But he was mistaken. Only two trains each day made the journey into Canada. And Kelsey knew that this train would end at Beecher Falls, a small town just inside the United States, about eight miles from the border. There would be no more trains traveling that night into Canada, and Thaw would be stranded, unable to complete his journey. I pull up those bootstraps, Thaw. Uh Uh-huh. Kelsey planned to drive to Beecher Falls from Colebrook, notify the local police, and surprise Thaw before he could cross into Canada. But Kelsey was too late. Thaw and his companion alighting from the train at its terminus had realized their mistake and hired a driver and his car at Beecher Falls. No one saw them enter Canada. The border crossing was unmanned. And later that night, they reached a small village in the province of Quebec. So he got away with this for him. (laughs) I don't know why. I'm like... I know. I mean, this is the the confounding thing. We're hearing now some really bad things about him. But this is a very exciting escape. This is very like, you know, Shawshank Redemption over here. You you want him to get free. And so did America. And it turns out so did Canada. So he was discovered the next day in the small village. And he was remanded to a Canadian prison to await extradition. Harry's attorneys raced New York authorities to battle them to keep Harry in Canada. After weeks of negotiation with Canada's public opinion heavily favoring Harry Thaw. So like now it's spread to Canada. Like, so they're hearing all about this for the first time. It's been like five years since this whole thing went down. Okay. I need more actually at this point. And they're like, wait, I'm just now hearing about this. And that guy was right to kill the guy that raped his wife. So now Canada's getting involved in it. And like all the Canadians are like, no, don't deport him. Keep him here, you know? So funny. And so, yeah, so it became this huge legal situation. And eventually Canada like decided that they had to deport him, but they didn't want to do it. Like they didn't want to deliver him to the New York authorities because they didn't think it was right, even though they legally kind of had to return him to the United States. So they literally in the middle of the night in secret did not tell like the U.S. authorities and just like drove him over the border into New Hampshire and were like, there, we deported you. (laughs) And just let him free. (laughs) Oh my God. I love that. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. So they're like, okay, you're free. So they dumped him in New Hampshire. 
Um, he stayed in New Hampshire really happily and comfortably for 18 months while New York fought tooth and nail for his return. Because you have you to lie. No, he was like just like living it up. He was living in a nice rented house. He had friends. Got like an A-frame frame cabin up yeah, in the woods. He's just, having, he's just having a little retreat. He's Hot going tub. to the spa. <laughs> Uh, yeah. And so you have to extradite over state lines too. And so New Hampshire's like, I don't know, do we have to give him up? And New York's like, yes, he escaped from a mental asylum in New York. You have to give him back to us. And New Hampshire's like, I don't know if I do. So this went on for 18 months. I don't know. He's spending quite a bit of money in our state. <laughs> True. He's bought a very lovely summer home here. He just hired, you know, he's hired a huge amount of our population. <laughs> oh my god yeah so eventually new york authorities brought this all the way to the supreme court who ordered harry back to new york city to face the charge of conspiracy to escape and send him back to matawan what a buzzkill <laughs> no he was having a grand adventure you could write a, like a netflix series about him like rediscovering himself in the mountains of new hampshire the adventures of Thaw. Yeah, the adventures of Thaw and like his his like new like best friend and the dog he adopted. He's like, I'm a man with a past, but now I I'm just it, a man in a small town who likes woodworking. We call it de-thawing. <laughs> I don't know if that was really good or really bad, but I liked it either way. <laughs> it can be both. It can be both, yes. So the jury in that case decided that Thaw had not conspired to escape because he had simply walked out of the asylum. No one was bribed and no one was injured in his escape. And it didn't like, it wasn't exactly a complex plan. He just walked out an open door. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's not, <laughs> it's not his fault that you guys had horrible security. <laughs> exactly. However, he still had to stand trial to determine his sanity and if he should be sent back to the mental asylum. The Matawan hearings had been kept mostly quiet from the public. So this trial was the first most had heard from Susan Merrill, the landlady, who testified to Thaw's cruel, abusive, and illegal treatment of underage girls once again. I guess no. she like really, really, really didn't want to do it this time too. She was forced to, she was subpoenaed and she was like, I like on the stand, she's like, I'm here against my will. I don't want to be talking about this. I don't want to be in the public, but it's the truth. And she, I guess, came across very believable on the stand. But once again, Thaw's attorneys who were, you know, very high powered, they have so much money, tore her apart because she had no proof of any such arrangement, nor was there any like, you know, photographic evidence. I mean, this is way back then, but still there's no proof of these injuries. There was none of the girls came forward. There was, they could not find anyone to corroborate this. Yeah. Weird. Uh-huh. And so there was like 25 people who had like interacted with Harry during his stay in New Hampshire, all the people that potentially worked for him. <laughs> who all testified that Harry was like the greatest guy in the world, that he was completely sane, that he was competent, that in the 18-month period he had lived in New Hampshire, he had been like a totally reasonable human being who treated everyone well. So they're like, you guys don't have anything to worry about of us releasing him into society because he just was in society for 18 months and he didn't do shit, you know? 
Yeah, but he's also like on best behavior. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and also, I think some of these people were paid to say that. In the closing argument, Thaw's attorney reminded the jury that it was not their job to ascertain whether Harry had been sane at the time of the shooting or even whether he was legally culpable of the murder that had already been decided. It was simply to decide whether he was sane now. Harry himself had appeared stoic, calm, and rational on the stand. The jury decided once and for all that Harry was indeed sane and should be let free to live with his mother. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't crazy in the first place. (laughs) Yeah, he was just getting revenge. Yeah. After nine long years and Mary Thaw spending over a million dollars on his legal team, Harry Thaw was a free man. That is something like $27 million in today's money. Wow. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, a million dollars is a lot not taken for inflation. $27 million on all of the things she had to do to try to get him out. The editorial opinion in New York newspapers was sharply divided over whether this was just and right. Okay. It had been a valiant fight, according to the Morning Telegraph, and Thaw's victory had been deservedly earned. He had been insane when he pulled the trigger, but he had since demonstrated his sanity. The average citizen, proclaimed the Telegraph, does not take with much seriousness the conclusions of so-called experts. There has been little doubt in the minds of most thinking men of Thaw's mental restoration for several years. The verdict was not unexpected, the New York world decided, but it was nevertheless deplorable. They weren't into it. Thaw had had the opportunity to win his freedom only because of his family's vast wealth. It was a disgraceful episode that had tarnished the legal system of New York State, and the community had every expectation and hope that Thaw would now disappear from public view. The Thaw money, operating through lawyers, doctors, experts, and legal processes, kept the question of the prisoner's sanity before the courts. The Thaw money has brought reproach to the medical as well as the legal profession. But no one could have felt more dismay and regret at the verdict than Evelyn Nesbitt. She had twice testified against her husband, telling the courts that he had threatened to kill her, and now she was terrified that he would take his revenge. All I ask of him is that he leave me in peace to continue my stage career, Evelyn told the reporter for the New York Tribune. I do not want his name. I do not want his money. She had sacrificed her reputation for his sake, saving him from the electric chair, receiving nothing for her efforts, and now she wanted that he leave her alone. She had shared her life with him, and she knew his vengeful, vindictive nature. She also knew that Harry was violent and unpredictable. An explosion of rage, an outburst of anger might occur at any time for no apparent reason, and she was fearful she might be his next victim. Two years after he had been freed in 1917, Harry befriended a young man named Fred Gump from Kansas while Fred had been vacationing with his family in Long Beach, California. Thaw struck up a conversation with the Gumps and Fred revealed he had plans to study engineering after high school graduation. Harry encouraged the boy to apply to the Carnegie Institute of Technology in his hometown of Pittsburgh and generously offered to pay the boy's tuition as part of a Thaw scholarship. Fred and his parents were over the moon at this fortuitous meeting, and Fred traveled to New York City over Christmas to spend some time with his benefactor before continuing on to enroll at Carnegie for the January term. 
Yeah, and that's, like, shit that he, like, always has done. So yes. that's not, like, out of character or anything. Absolutely. And, like, his um, family yeah. is extremely well-known in Pittsburgh and in Pennsylvania in general. Yeah. So this isn't surprising. Okay. When Fred arrived on the train from Kansas, the two immediately took in dinner and a Broadway show, and then Harry brought him back to the upscale Hotel McAlpin, where he had booked a large apartment-like suite with several bedrooms, bathrooms, a large sitting room, and parlor. Upon their return to the suite, Thaw suggested that Fred take a bath and retire after his long day spent on the train. Here's what happened next, according to Fred's later testimony. Oh, no. Half an hour later, as Gump stepped naked from the bath, the bathroom door opened unexpectedly. Thaw stood in the doorway, holding a bathrobe in his left hand. Gump reached for the robe and Thaw suddenly attacked, beating him across his shoulders with a whip. Gump fought back, striking his assailant with his fist, trying desperately to free himself, but Thaw had the advantage of surprise. You are my slave now, Thaw cried triumphantly, dragging his victim into the sitting room. Uh Uh-huh, forcing him to his knees and continuing to beat him with the whip. You will submit to me, won't you? Gump pleaded with Thaw to stop and the whipping ended as suddenly as it had begun. Thaw, holding the whip high above his head as if to strike again, ordered Gump to swear to always be his slave and to obey his commands. Oh, God. All of these people were right all along. I got all the way to the end of this book and I was like, no. Oh, my God. Wow. Wow. Thaw, satisfied that he had beaten his victim into submission, eventually went to bed, but Gump, terrified that Thaw would attack a second time, remained awake throughout the night. Of course. How old is he, like 18? He's 18. On one occasion around 2 o'clock, he silently tiptoed to the door leading to the hallway, hoping to escape while Thaw slept. But the door was locked and the key was nowhere to be found. Only the next morning after breakfast did Gump manage to slip away. He knew no one in New York, and his only thought was to get out of the city as quickly as possible, of course. Oh, my God. Poor kid. The train for Kansas City left Pennsylvania Station at midday, and that evening, Gump arrived home and described his ordeal to his parents, showing them the welts on his shoulders and torso. His father acted quickly, arranging for this a This is like not funny, but it's like crazy. So crazy, guys. We're just in shock. Like I, I have read this book and I am still in shock rereading it because the first time I read this, I got, this is in the epilogue. Like I'm like, I'm done with this. The epilogue is probably just going to say what happened to everybody's life afterwards. And then I'm like, what? The what? He, did, he whipped who? He did what? He said, who was his slave? Oh my God. Oh my god. Poor child. I wonder if like mommy whipped him or something. Maybe. He got spanked and he liked it a little too much or something. I think he had yeah, I don't know. daddy issues, so maybe it was daddy. Okay. Um Swan was also quick to respond. That's the Manhattan district attorney arranging for a photographer to take pictures of Gump's wounds and sending his detectives to the Hotel McAlpin to investigate. The concierge confirmed that Gump had indeed stayed with Harry Thaw at the hotel. So 
all of these unsubstantiated rumors before, like they had like gotten ahead of and paid off. This kid from Kansas is like, I got the wealth. I was at the hotel. I got the proof. I got the photographs. Like, Dude should still be there whip and toe. <laughs> yeah. If it didn't take him so long <laughs> to Kansas and then get all the way back to New York, he would have been still in the suite. With his bag of tricks. Oh, my goodness. So. Wow. He had left the hotel. He had not left a forwarding address. and The concierge had no idea where he had gone. The district attorney eventually learned that Thaw had fled to Philadelphia. Swan sent his detectives to Philadelphia, where they fanned across the city, checking the hotels, watching the trains leaving Broad Street Station, and speaking to the car rental agencies. Thaw had stayed at the Hotel Belgravia on Rittenhouse Square for a few days, but he had subsequently disappeared. Had he already left Philadelphia? Could he now be back in Pittsburgh? So it turns out Thaw was hiding out in a boarding house under a fake name. And as every police officer prowled Philly looking for the nefarious millionaire, Thaw knew his time was up. He had commanded sympathy by avenging his raped wife, but no one would have sympathy for a man who assaulted an innocent teenage boy. Tried to make him his slave. Uh-huh. Did he think this kid was going to go I'm along so with it? Like, sure. So yes, sorry for like a little boy from Kansas City. Like, oh. he's like, what? <laughs> that, I mean, that's the thing is it's not funny, but that poor kid must have been so shocked. Just, he's from and Kansas. And then you're like, Locked in your hotel room from the inside. It's terrifying. This is like American horror story shit hotel. <laughs> he could oh, not bear the thought of another extradition to New York and a public trial. Instead, he drew a straight razor across his left wrist and forearm, as well as his windpipe and jaw. Stop it. Mm-hmm. Luckily for him, only seconds later, his landlady happened to arrive to clean his room and found him bleeding out on the bed. A doctor was instantly dispatched and quickly bound his wounds to staunch the bleeding. They said that even if she had come in like five minutes later, he would have already bled out. Ugh. Harry Thaw survived, but his new assault charge and attempted suicide finally convinced his mother that her son was severely mentally unwell. You think? Pennsylvania State refused to extradite to New York and instead committed Harry to the Pennsylvania Hospital for the Insane, a private asylum in West Philly, because the Thaws spent a lot of money in Pennsylvania. Thaw lived a life of ease there, enjoying a privileged existence, even traveling on occasion to visit relatives in Pittsburgh. Mary, Stop. Yeah, he, and he got out eventually, too. Mary Thaw Ew. reached a settlement with the Gump family for a reported $25,000, about a half mil today. I feel like that little kid deserves more for <laughs> I the I shit beaten out of him. I think he should have gotten a full mil. In today's money, that poor kid. Full mill for sure. Yeah, that is, that incident is a full million right there. That's like PTSD forever. Oh my God, yes. Yes, the whipping incident was quickly forgotten. This wasn't Harry's first time assaulting young men though. So I did some research on this because, you know, this whole book I've been thinking, Ugh, this could be people, you know, just making stuff up against him. I was like totally thinking that, you know, he was a vigilante for his wife. 
So I did some research, and according to an article on headstuff.org by Siren Conleaf, Harry had been ejected from Harvard due to sexually assaulting several of his male classmates. Also, in another incident in London, Harry had lured a bellboy to his hotel room and kept the poor lad naked as a prisoner, torturing and beating him for hours. It took $5,000 and all of his mother's lawyers to keep that one out of the press. Oh, my God. I mean, you did say he was a playboy. Uh, yeah, a sadomasochistic, scary, scary, scary playboy. The rumors of this type of behavior was exactly why Harry had been blackballed from every gentleman's club in New York. In a sick twist of fate, Stanford White had been 100% correct about Harry Thaw. Takes one to know one, I guess. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't make him a better person. No, two wrongs do not make a right. This, I mean, just think about Evelyn's bad luck, though. Yeah, I mean, but she was 16. It was like, here you go. Yeah, and her mother did nothing to protect her. No, not to mention she probably wouldn't have, I mean, obviously she didn't know if it hit her over the head, like if a bad dude yeah. came along. Nobody so. knows who a bad dude is at 16. <laughs> we all make terrible decisions. No, but like a, a mother, like a you mother should be you. Yeah. yeah. Evelyn made a name for herself performing on vaudeville with a dance partner named Jack Clifford. She eventually granted Harry a divorce in 1916 and married her partner, Jack. Unfortunately, Jack was a cad who cheated on her every chance he got, so she eventually divorced him and enjoyed a brief Hollywood career in the movies, shooting eight films between 1918 and 1922. Awesome. Unfortunately, with fame came access to drugs and Evelyn became hopelessly addicted to morphine. Oh, no. Yeah. I mean, she probably had a lot of PTSD and a lot of trauma and a lot of things to work through. Yeah. In 1922, she entered a sanatorium to basically do a rehab program and beat her addiction. She moved back to New York clean where she opened a tea room near Broadway. The tea room was a massive financial disaster due to mismanagement and thieving employees. So Evelyn was forced to close penniless. To make ends meet, she sang at clubs in Atlantic City. Once the most famous supermodel in New York City, she now sang at dinner theater on the Jersey Shore. I mean, it's, it, unfortunately, that's like the fate of a lot of young famous actors and mm -hmm. actresses. It's like really fucked. I know it's crazy to me how prescient the story is, how it could have been. You could have just moved it up to today, you know? Yeah. In 1926, she attempted suicide by drinking disinfectant, but thankfully no. she survived. Yeah. After that attempt, she moved to Los Angeles and was supported by her son, Russell, who had become a commercial pilot, which like this is like back in the 20s, 30s, 40s. Like, being a commercial pilot was a big deal. You were baller. Uh-huh. So he did, he did a good job for himself. She passed her last days in a small apartment on Figueroa Street in downtown LA. Did you know where that is? Well, my my office is on Figueroa. Is it? Was yeah. it? Figu no, my new one. Your new one, yes. So it goes all the way downtown, but Figueroa is that street, like right where Kitchen Mouse is and everything. Oh, That's Figueroa. my gosh. Yeah, so it said it was so on Figueroa downtown. downtown. Yeah, so there's like the downtown little sect between 
like the five and the 101 and the 110 yeah. all right there. Um, that's it's probably she was probably down there. Oh, I want to go to Kitchen Mouse. So yum. So yum. <laughs> So yes, she spent her last days in a small apartment on Figueroa Street in downtown LA, doting on her grandchildren, teaching sculpture classes at a nearby ceramic studio, and tending That's to her cool. cat. Yeah, I was like, wait, ceramics and cats? This sounds like living in LA. This sounds a little bit like if something bad happened to Dan, the end of Andy's life and her grandchildren. <laughs> Only I'd be with you and we'd have opened up our beach restaurant. Yeah. The clam shack. Clam shack. The clam trap. <laughs> when Harry Thaw passed away in 1947 of a coronary thrombosis in his Miami Beach mansion, I roll, he left Evelyn a mere 10 grand out of his $1.25 million fortune. That's like, it's like, it ended up being like $115,000. Wow. What a piece of shit. Uh-huh. Still, you know, like $115,000 is okay, but it's, nothing for saving his ass from the electric chair at two different trials and ruining her life. Ugh. Wow. In 1955, she received $30,000 for her work as a consultant for the film The Girl in the Velvet Swing, a movie about the scandal that defined her life with Joan Collins playing Evelyn. Wow. I love that. No, we should check the movie out. I love that. I'm glad that she got some money off of her story. Also, Joan yeah. Collins is cute. That's a good person to play you. Oh, my God. That is so cool. Mm -hmm. Evelyn died at the age of 82 of natural causes at a nursing home in Santa Monica. She is buried at the Holy Cross Cemetery in Culver City. Oh, cool. Wow. So that is Evelyn Nesbitt's insane life and the murder of Stanford White at the hands of the maniac Harry Thaw. I cannot believe he had the wool covering all of our eyes. All of our eyes. I was on his side. All of our eyeballs. I was on his side the whole time. That's why like two weeks ago, you know, I, I almost forgot about Catherine Knight because I was in the middle of this story and I was, I had just found this out. And that's why I was like, Guys, hang on for next week because it's going to be wild. And we actually had two wild ones in a row because Catherine Knight was a wild story too. Yeah, she was like terrifying. <laughs> she was terrifying. But yeah, <laughs> this was this was crazy. I I had actually heard this story on a different podcast. Um, they didn't get into such great detail about it. And they did no, not. Like you always, you always, <laughs> you always really take it up like so many notches. So many notches. You always. To reference Spinal Tap again, you always take it to 11. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, baby. Um, yeah. And they like kind of stopped like um, like after the trial. And there's so much more to this story. It's insane. Yeah. It's like, uh, did you guys not want to cover that he's a psychopath? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow. Okay. So that is the crazy turn of the century story of Evelyn Esbitt. I hope it gave, I know we have like a, a contingency of real like lovers of the old cases. So I hope this was some nice red meat for y'all. And if you like this story, I know a way you can show us. Send us a review on Apple Podcasts and we will give you a sticker. Um, yeah, make make a couple humongously pregnant women happy. Yeah, it, that would be really, really nice. It's you know, probably the only thing. <laughs> yeah, the and <laughs> yeah, you guys should really give it to us. Thanks. Yeah, because it's the only thing that's going to make us happy these days until yeah. we give birth. <laughs> 
In conclusion, benefactors always come with strings. Yeah, they're like little puppets. Oof. Also, money can pretty much eventually buy your way out of absolutely anything. Then and now. Mm-hmm. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so nobody ends up murdered. Thanks for listening. Bye. 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 